0: Oftentimes enlightening and informative and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Nathaniel Popkin. He's the author of seven books, including his newest work, To Reach the Spring, From Complicity to Consciousness in the Age of Eco Crisis. That's the subject of our conversation. It's a great book and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Nathaniel Popkin. Nathaniel, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Scott, it's so great to be here. I love uh, having conversations with you, uh, and I hope this will be a good one.
0: Yeah, uh, the feeling's mutual. I always enjoy your work and talking with you about it. We were going to do it last week, but I had a a, a wild reaction to my COVID shot, my second COVID shot. So a public service announcement to all our listeners. If you get the second COVID shot, it can be a doozy. (laughs) Uh, but it can um, be your new book. It, yeah, right. Right. It can. Definitely. <laughs> in fact, I've heard it's, it's actually for a lot of people, it winds up being that way. Um, it's interesting because your new book is called, uh, to reach the spring from complicity to consciousness in the age of eco crisis. And I was thinking it's kind of f- funny and maybe slightly ironic that, uh, our conversation was delayed because of something related to a, a pandemic because one of the things a lot of people think is, is that this is going to be the consequence of the eco crisis, right? That we're going to be living through more and more pandemic like events as a global community, right?
1: Well, there, I'll start again. Um, they're totally integrated. I'm trying to get the right word up oh, here. We go. Okay. Um, the, the the pandemic and the climate emergency and the eco crisis are intrinsically interconnected. There there isn't one without the other, and so pandemics are coming with greater rapidity to human cultures and human societies because the Earth is warming and because human um, development and human civilizations are in um, impinging on, on wild parts of the earth. So as the earthworms and species move, they interconnect. They have new interactions. And those interactions spread viruses that ultimately can then connect with human beings. So right there is a way in which uh, climate and pandemic are... Intrinsically connected, and there are other ways as well. And those get into the ways in which we respond to uh, the pandemic and the ways we respond to the climate emergency and the eco crisis. I think we can see, we can see what's coming through our response to the COVID pandemic.
0: Yeah, it seems like yeah, it, 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 this is. It, I I I I think I like the way you put that—the stressing of ecosystems, right? That we're, um, that these that we're in for a kind of stress on ecosystems, on a global level that we 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 I think that we couldn't couldn't imagine before. And the the other thing that that is so interesting is that it seems as as late moderns that we are more aware. Uh, of our ability to completely shape the climate and shape the global environment in, in, in which we live than any other, you know, we can do it more than any other civilization in history, it seems. And we're aware of that. And yet what one of the things that your book points out is that that awareness doesn't seem to, it, it seems to go hand in hand with an indifference to, to, to our capacities. Uh, so Scott, I'll, I'll, I'll
1: bite off the two parts of that question or, uh, of your, of your thoughts. Um, so yes, I mean, and this is something I cover first of all, to reach the spring as an invitation to the reader to think along with me about how to think about what's happening to us in terms of climate emergency and eco crisis, which we are complicit in. We are the people who are doing it. And that's where that awareness you just spoke of comes from. And yet, at the same time, we are the victims, um, and that's a really interesting place to be as moral beings. So, uh, and we can talk about that more a bit later. But you said, you know, we're we're late, we're late modern people, right? And and that's true. And modernity gives us a ways to think about what to do here. So, modernity gives us the possibility of of response and solving a problem for which that we are responsible for. Like we're responsible for the state of the earth right now as human beings. And modernity tells us we can figure out ways to fix it. At the same time, that same modernity is the problem itself. That is that tells us that we can manipulate the earth for our own ends has resulted in exactly where we are, as human civilization across the globe, and in uh, you know cultures of other beings, of animals and plants of all different kinds, who have to adjust their ways of life to the human. Um, the second part of your question was about why. Yeah, we know we know what we've done. We kind of know what we can do to fix it, if fixing it is the right word at all. And yet, there's something impossible here about this situation. And, and this is what strikes it as a difficult moral thing to face. That is, each of us is responsible for this. Each of us who is rich enough to contribute to um, the overuse of the Earth's resources. Each of us is responsible, but yet the responsibility is a collective one. So, how do we? So, you know, what you do, Scott, in your life matters very, very little into the actual whole impact that human beings have on the planet Earth, positive or negative. And yet, you have to figure out how to think about this and respond to what is coming at us in terms of a real upheaval in human society and human life in the coming decades and you're responsible for it collectively you're responsible for it so how do you respond to that do you change the way you live do you change your politics do you say well my role is really very minor here and whatever i do can't matter at all i'm just going to go along and so it puts us in a very uncomfortable place. As moral beings, we don't really know how to respond. And therefore, because this problem is so vast, beyond even our ability to to conceive of it, and we are so small as individuals, we are frozen. And this I call paralysis. We are paralyzed to think, to talk, and act on this issue. And that paralysis is something I'm trying to move us from with this book, to get us thinking and talking together, to find pathways through history, through philosophy, through literature, through poetry, um, to think together about how to face this.
0: You you note in the book, you say each person who stays inside wears a, mask, wears a mask outside and avoids unnecessary social interactions during the pandemic, pandemic is aligning personal moral responsibility with a broader public good. And notably for the subject of this work, they're practicing communally for the distinctly dire peril ahead. That sentence really jumped at me as I was reading your book. And I thought, wow, what is it that we've been able to mobilize people in in mass right to wear masks no again compliance isn't perfect and certainly you know my friends in different parts of the country i mean sadly in this country we've politicized so much where it seems that sometimes the someone's politics really come into play around the pandemic in a way they shouldn't but but by and large most of the country is taking this pretty seriously i mean what's the disconnect why can we cuz i think you're right that this that there is a transferable skill set here right a transferable sense of consciousness from from pandemic awareness and seeing us connected but why is it so hard to make the jump from covid-19 awareness and connection and being willing to um get our imaginations and minds around, wrapped around this but it seems like there's not that kind of thing with climate change
1: yeah. Well, I, as the the first thing I'll say is that yes, I mean this is a warm up, and we're we're failing in some regards, and in other guards, uh, other regards, we're we're seeing ways forward. So yeah, we are. Most people in this country are cooperating with the um, dictates of public health. Their social distancing, we now know, works very well. Masks work very well, and most people understand this. Most people also understand that the getting a vaccine is part of that personal responsibility towards the collective. And so we see in ways in which we can cooperate, we can collaborate, we can um, follow directives, we can look out for one another en masse, and and that's going to be really important to take with us going forward. There's one way in which, however, there's a distinct difference. And that is that all of that I just said is, in essence, the act of following science. And though the whole, the entire thing in this country and in other places as well has been bastardized by by, um, poisonous right-wing politics and media and untruth and conspiracy, all these things which are toxic to any public endeavor let alone a crisis of this magnitude. But if we take away that, we see that what we're doing as we are cooperating is that we're following science and we're listening to science. We're listening to normative data. We're letting those who understand epidemiology analyze that data and suggest to us exactly what our paths forward are. We're responding to conditions in which an exceptional um, set of uh, epidemiologists and scientists develop vaccines in record time through um, their extraordinary effort and extraordinary uh, knowledge. And so that's all about following science. And yet I just saw on Twitter minutes before we jumped into this interview. The farmers in Iowa, in the United States, among them only 18% believe in human-made global warming. And and so there we see one important difference that is holding us back from jumping into our response in 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 a similar way. And that is that we are not listening to the scientists and though the scientists have known since mid century 20th century that the earth was warming and they and that have been that scientific knowledge has been popularly known through uh, through government through government science in the united states europe and in other parts of the world since the mid 1980s We are still not following science on this, and so there is one reason for the disconnect that you talk about, and there are, of course, many others.
0: It's interesting you bring that statistic up about farmers in Iowa. I mean, yesterday I was watching cable news, and there was a segment where they had uh, they were they were discussing something Rand Paul had said. Senator Rand Paul um, had this interaction with Stephanopoulos on one of the I guess one of the Sunday shows and they were talking about, about um, Wisconsin, the the, some ballot issues in Wisconsin, the Wisconsin election um, this year. And Stephanopoulos said, you know, but there's not, he said, basically Rand Paul said to Stephanopoulos, there's come on, there's two sides to every story. And he said, no, there's not two sides to the story. There was no evidence of any widespread fraud at all. And 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 Rand Paul kind of lambasted him for saying there's not two. he's there's always two sides, and it, I wonder if that is if that kills us with an issue like climate change. Thinking, well, there's two sides to every story. Well, now first off, sometimes there's one side to a story, and sometimes there's nineteen sides, right? Like, well, look. and it seems it seems like with climate climate science, there's not two sides to the story, right? There's not like 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 just because you don't like it. Right doesn't entitle you to say there's a whole other side to it like it, it, it ev- the evidence over the long haul has shown that, that there's this is kind of a one side no now again our response could be we could really debate how we weigh all the all the things in our response but it seems like right the evidence is it's pretty one-sided at this point oh it's more than one-sided i mean and in fact the republican
1: party in the united states is the only political entity in the world that doesn't believe in to climate emergency or the eco-crisis or human-made uh, global warming. Uh, so their, their heads are in, their, in the sand in that regard, and Rand Paul is a, is a great example of that. You and I talked about this uh, earlier. Um, you know, we, we have – we, you and I, at our age, have inherited a kind of intellectual framework which says that there are many truths. And that was a great achievement because it meant – breaking away from truths that were dictated by sources of power, such as the church, um, uh, or any kind of fundamentalist, um, interpretation of, of life. Right. So many truths is exceptionally important. I write novels and if I didn't believe in many truths, novel, you know, I couldn't write an interesting novel. I couldn't develop characters whose, um, experiences were anything but utterly boring if there weren't multiple truths and if morality wasn't a provisional thing that we're always responding to circumstances that um that surround us and adjusting the ways that we respond we wouldn't be able to think about you know how a human being could go to the heart of darkness in one moment and um into the light in another in a different circumstance that is we contain multitudes yes we do and we contain multiple truths yes we do and yet this is that opening that was created by that really wonderful step forward in thinking about humanity is being exploited by um by poisonous conspiracy, conspiracy theorists across the globe, um, who seek to undermine any kind of faith in liberalism, in the project of liberalism, which follows that information and knowledge is the way to make rational decisions about um, human life, and um, and so. It's been exploited. It's been turned on its head for political ends, for dangerous, dangerous political ends um, that have nothing to do with the kind of miraculous uh, recognition of of multiple truths within each of us or within history, um, but more to do with the seizing of power in the hands of the very few. So it's very troubling if he was to say there are two sides of the story in regard to the 2020 presidential election. That's entirely false. There's only one story, and, and that was that 80 million people voted for uh, Joe Biden and 74 or 75 million people voted for Donald Trump. And, and that's the way it went. Um, so um, I, I don't know how we deal with that. And and that seems to me fundamentally another way in which the pandemic, with all of the untruths that have been thrown at it, um, including now, you know, the fact that so many healthcare providers are refusing to get vaccinated because they're reading conspiracy and they're believing conspiracy. How do we deal with that? And the stakes are going to grow even higher as we move into increasing and intensifying climate crisis.
0: Yeah, and that yeah, I, I, that's so well put and I think the thing I find myself the, the bind I find myself in is you, you almost hear people on the left this, which is where you know where I locate myself, you know, politically and culturally almost tempted to go back to an old school objectivity in the face of this 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 kind of um multifaceted approach to the truth that's that's in bad faith like i I think you put that really well because the original kind of postmodern perspectivalism was in it was meant to be in good faith right it it was meant to be liberative and get more voices in the in in the room um to 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 actually expand the democratic project whereas like what you're saying is this is actually to consolidate power um you know i remember hearing kelly conway kelly and conway saying you know well, these are alternative facts. <laughs> Chuck Todd's saying alternative facts are just false. It's like, it's, there's no such thing as an alternative fact.
1: And um, that's exactly it. And, that's, um, and, and, you know, Vladimir Putin has been um, probably the most successful single manipulator of that, that paradigm right there.
0: And I wonder also how much you, like the difference between facts and the truth right because you 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 could find I'm sure you well you know I mean they found they did find um a hand like I think um I think they found an example in Pennsylvania of one dead person that voted and they voted for Trump like I bet, but I mean you I'm sure you could find um we're a big country I'm sure if you went around the country and went to every municipality you could find facts right of 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 election, you know, of, of, of of bad votes, right? That's going to happen in any election. That's really different than, but that's, but that's not, that doesn't mean the truth is there was widespread election fraud. There's just not, there's no evidence that there's widespread stuff. This is kind of one-off stuff here, one-off stuff there, but it's interesting because you could be, you could, you can use facts against the truth, right? Sometimes, like you can find isolated facts and then Disconnect them from wider reality. And that's. And, and facts don't necessitate the truth.
1: And that is exactly what those who are so called climate deniers do. They take isolated facts, you know, an ecosystem on the rebound here, um, uh, a place where that's cooling there, um, and use them. Against as as a bulwark against the real and overall and manifest truth, um, and and you know none of this is unrelated. Um, the the attempt to use untruth to claim fraud in the United States presidential election was done on behalf of uh, white supremacy. Was done on behalf of people who see their ability to remain completely in power drifting away based upon um, a history of white control of government in the United States. And um, as uh, as white people ultimately will become the minority racially in in the U.S. And so – when we think about responses to climate and we want to say, uh, this isn't really happening, we're doing it on behalf of the same paradigm. That is that um, those who are, uh, who are about to suffer the most on this earth are the same who have suffered the most through COVID uh, in the United States. That is black and brown people. Uh, and, and so these things are all these things are all connected. you see it um, through through the economic prism that is um, one of the things I imagine to have been going on all this time in the last four years particularly is a, not only a desire to deny climate change happening um, by people like Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin, but an actual desire to speed it up. So that oligarchical interests in both places, the United States and in Russia, could get their hands on the Arctic and the oil reserves that may or may not be there to control it, to exploit it. And uh, seeing that that's not going to be possible if we uh, become more dem- democratic, more responsive to all the people in each country, all the people in the world. So th- these things are connected in my mind.
0: You write in the book, you, I, this is, and, and I felt such conviction as I read this. Like, you said, consenting to be exploited as consumers, indeed embracing it, we become exploiters of the earth. In this way, passivity becomes aggression. So injured as we are to living in, a, in consumer cultures or, or so inured rather, I'm sorry, so inured as we are to living in consumer cultures, we don't even realize we're doing it. Um, that, I mean, you know, I mean, we are homo economists, right? I mean, it is, I consume, therefore I am, right? I mean, that's, that that's the kind of American ethos. And that to me, but I think, but I think what's interesting is the way you paint this picture in the book is like, look, it, it, it's this moral plea that's not moralistic, which is interesting because you're kind of asking people to to, uh, to sort of just own that we're all in this together, and it's not one single choice, whatever. We're, we're part of a a cultural collective that, in, unless you are really radical, you know, like, and, and sort of drop out in some kind of alternative culture, just being a normal American, it, it, you could be, vote progressive, you could do this, you could do that, you could even drive a Prius or whatever. And you're still part of the the wider consumptive problem that's killing us, right? That's right. And part of me
1: um, getting into that in the book is to lead us to be able to start to think about ourselves as beings differently. And so that means maybe, I mean, the, the job of a writer is, I think, to help people see things through a new lens, and words have that power because they create images, and they create um, ideas, and they create concepts for thinking and living. And so, and that can be at a, in a big way, or it can be very small and minor ways. But one of the things about our lives um, as human beings in twenty twenty one is that we're chiefly consumers. We're not. You know, that's, that's how human evolution has, is where it has taken us. That is our basic role is that we consume and, and the waste of our consumption is one of our, is one of the biggest problems facing the earth is the weight of all the plastic in the ocean, for example, will exceed the weight of all the fish by 2050. That's a startling thought that's because of our chief role as, as consumers. And, and, and so I, I'm trying to pause it with, and there's no blame here. There's no, it isn't, this isn't meant to be moralistic at all. It's meant to say, well, could we think about this? Could we think about our lives a little bit differently? Could we think about the way we live and the way we uh, relate to one another differently besides through the the paradigm of, uh, of consumption? And so in the hope in planting that idea early in the book is when we get to it later on, we can, and we imagine how our consciousness could change, we might get there. And there's an important reason for this in the, in the theory around, uh, eco crisis right now. And that is that, you know, one of the troubles is that when we try to solve a problem as modern human beings, we create new problems or we just reify our status on earth as, uh, manipulators and, and, and so one of the ways of thinking about what led us to this space as consumers, as as modern people, is that um, we really aren't, you know, is, it, it, is that in reality, we're beings that are dependent on other beings. Many beings live inside of us. We live enmeshed in ecosystems with all different kinds of plants and animals, plants and animals. And so adjusting the way we think about that rather than being individuals, individual members of a species, members of a species that thinks of itself as standing apart from that mesh that has gotten us into this trouble in the first place. And if we begin to alter our consciousness as to, so that we can imagine ourselves not as standing separately and alone, but as being enmeshed. And that we are therefore dependent and at stake to all of these other kinds of species, of all different kinds—bacteria, plants, animals—all different kinds. Uh, we might see that shift in our consciousness about who we are away from the sort of uh, the the sort of, the sort of consumer model that is our the primary driver of the way we live so this is just a consciousness raising effort a, a way to like a whisp- you know this book is like a whispering in the ear it's meant to sort of suggest ways of questioning how we get along now uh, so that we can talk through and lead ourselves to a different place that may in fact uh be safer, be better, be more beautiful, be more satisfying, uh, and, and also allow us to avoid imminent crisis.
0: So I have kind of a meta question raised by by some of what you just said. I mean, I, I, I hate like bifurcated questions, but sometimes you just have to ask them because, you know, they give you the gestalt for something, the whole shape of some kind of question. But I think one of the big questions existentially, right, is does human being change or doesn't human nature, like the, what human being is change or, or, or doesn't it, right? And so I can think of like a, a traditionalist like C.S. Lewis that would be on the kind of human nature is kind of constant or some sci-fi writers, right, and critics who think one of the reasons the genre works is because y- you change the tools and the setting and, th- and the time, but like humans don't change that much. Then you have people like Heidegger um, and, you know, I think of some of his modern day disciples like Dreyfus and Kelly who wrote that great book, All Things Shining, about like, uh, who really think that human being is a fluid thing, that what it means to be a human is human nature is not static. Being changes. and, and, And even the concept of being is a pretty fluid. So are you in the kind of, I mean, I have a guess, but are you in the kind of human nature is more constant or it's more in flux? Scott,
1: you're leading me right into the trap that we talked about earlier. Of course there are, mul- <laughs> <laughs> there, are there are multiple truths. Just, yes I, and. This just, became, this just became Fox News. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Yes and. It I think is the is the right answer here. Um so I mean some of my work uh is in historic fiction and there you know this is the same as science fiction where you know you're there is this kind of universality of human experience in human nature that can be evoked in the future and it can be evoked in the past and all of it is meant to be a reflection on the present uh, or an expansion of our consciousness of about what the present is and uh, you know i think that in those realms we are kind of stuck in ways that we think human beings by nature are and of course there's consistencies because Evolution happens slowly. Time is vast and hard to grapple with. So even when we're talking about science fiction in the way you just spoke of it, like we we still you know, we the, the reader is in the present, and the reader is trying to understand the character, and the character has to be related to the reader in the present, so the character has to kind of be of the same nature as the reader, same with historical fiction. So, so yes, I, 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 you know, so one of the most remarkable things of, about being a student of history is seeing ourselves in those actors in the past and seeing how their psychology um, was shaped by their circumstances, and how they, um, how they were able to use their human intellect and their human nature to, to go forward in their lives. Um, that feels very familiar. It feels just like us. So I think I'm on that one side. On the other hand, I believe deeply in fluidity. And we are seeing it in, we're seeing it live right now in terms of um, gender identity, in terms of sexual identity, in terms of the way we relate as beings to our own bodies. Um, I think we are going to be seeing uh, in the coming, I don't know, millennia, the ways in which human beings and different kinds of um, plant and animal species interreact. i mean, the pandemic is a product of this interaction. So, I, I do think that evolution is evolution. And evolution means change. Evolution means fluidity. Evolution means um, that ever nothing. There, what there is no pure beginning, and there is no pure end. And, and I talk about this in the book, it, it means that we can't try to go back to some pure, better space. The, the back-to-nature idea is hogwash as a construct for getting us out of this mess we're in because there, there wasn't ever a moment of purity. On the other hand, it's a very galvanizing image back to nature, and so we, we can't dismiss it. So there's another both and for you.
0: But but I think it's interesting though, because I think the back to nature impulse is also a way to avoid, avoid the complex messy handed nature, universal messy handedness or dirty handedness or bloody handedness that you describe in your book, right? That you're kind of trying to get us to like, you're trying to get us to a place, I think, where we all, see our place in this in this collective reality. And the back to nature thing, I think, is kind of escapism, right? It can be a kind of moral escapism, right? Well, I'm living in this kind of, you know, back to nature, like rustic bucolic thing, so I'm not part of the problem. But even that's a consumer decision, right? Like, like, like most people that can do that, do it from the perspective of the consumer that's already contributing to the problem. Absolutely. I mean,
1: it's a construct. And... It's a construct that's most often ma- manifest through through consumer, you know, you can buy your way to simplicity. I, I can't tell you the number of products I see from, you know, breakfast granola to shampoo um, that use that construct as a way to sell their product, um, which isn't to say there isn't something authentic while living in a mechanized, now distant world where you know we're present to each other in, in rectangles, uh, where we live in cities that distance us from aspects of nature that feel important, that feel that are that they're that we that make us feel like we're missing something in our own natures. I you know, I think those are instincts that are real and true, and we can't ignore them either. Um, there's something about I mean, I'm a romantic in some sense, and you know, I, I you know, for example, the you know, 19, early 19th century or late 18th century German Romanticism, it it means something to me. I I connect to that sensibility when I'm in nature, so to speak. I feel differently. I feel differently about myself, and so here here again is a way in which all of these questions that we face because of what is really an emergency um, the the conversation is complicated man it's 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 it, there isn't a straightforward answer and that's part of our paralysis
0: you you, open the book with a letter to your imagined grandchild that does not yet exist. Yeah. I think you have two kids. Um, and neither of them ha- has given you a grandchild yet, but you're imagining that you may have one and, and you write, it's funny because, you know, I think Nietzsche says that every philosophy is, is the personal confession of the philosopher. And I, I kind of read this as your confession. I mean, it was, it's a, it's a very powerful letter. Um, explaining to your grandchild the legacy uh you that you've left her or him and you sign it with this the 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 closing greeting it just really struck me you say would love from the edge of reason your grandfather I mean can you just say that, I mean that's a thing where like this is in my list of it immediately went down and I have a list of things I wish I would have written or said. And I love that with love from the edge of reason. Can you just unpack that for me a little bit?
1: Um, I'm so glad uh, Scott, that it, it struck you like that. Um, you know, as a writer, we write things and we, that strike us as, and we don't ever know exactly what is going to
0: hit. What's gonna? It was perfect. It was perfect because the whole, my, I had a really emotional response to reading this letter to your magic grandchild. And then you close it that way. And it was like this wave coming over. It was just powerful.
1: Yeah. So, what I meant by that, I had just gone through a kind of confession. Uh, And I, you know, it's exactly what it was. I didn't think of it that way, but it was a confession. It was a confession that, I was responsible and my this imagined child's parents, my children are responsible, my parents and their parents are responsible for creating the reality which in my mind thinking 50 years from now when um you know fi- you know let's say thinking say 65 years from now when this imagined grandchild would be my age, which is around 50, um, the horror that they're going to have to live through that is a result of things we did and and the legacy we left. And I wanted this imagined grandchild to know that it wasn't done on purpose. It wasn't done With malintent. It was done with blindness. It was done um, because we couldn't, we didn't know how to grapple with that which we were doing. And it was done continuously and still today because the products of our actions are still diffuse and hard to discern exactly. And it was done with the hope by me that this imagined grandchild would know that I struggled, would understand that I struggled and not dismiss me, not hate me for having created the horror that they have to live that they are forced to live within. And, um, and so it, it. that's what I meant. Um, I, I want that imagined grandchild to hope to, you know, to, to imagine there is a spring. I want that imagined grandchild to know that, um, among his or her or their Ancestors were fighters and seekers of justice. Uh, And I want that imagined grandchild to know just how despairing our complicity really is. I want them to know that we knew for decades and decades we have known, and yet we've only continued doing the same things. Over and over, except worse.
0: There's a line in the letter that uh, that I I I love. I know a little bit about where you grew up because you know we've talked a few times, and so you say to your imagined grandchild, you were talking about just all the existential kind of things that are going on at the time, and and you say to escape, I drove, my friends drove, my parents drove. My grandparents, my uncles, aunts, and cousins, the ancient trees, the vast oceans absorbed all the carb, that carbon in silence, as if enduring the irritating noise of terrible children. As if all the while thinking, they know not what they have done. I mean, in that whole, like, I think of that, like, it's this cruciform image, right? It's like, it's like, you know, you think of Christ saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do it's like you have the earth as this Christ figure um, trying to have this, you know, this, this sort of word of like suffering pardon to these children that know not what they do. And just, I think about like growing up in suburban, that's what you do. You drive, right? Like that's, I mean, I remember getting my licenses. That was the passport to freedom, right? Like, and so just that, that great, you're just the way you, you depict the car and the drive as something that felt liberative but was really a prison or or was really creating the prison of the climate situation. I mean, that was just – and I wonder what your imagined grandchild – would like I don't know what their relationship to driving or cars will be, right? But that's an interesting insight. that This thing that gave you so much pleasure at one point in your life has become this real – image of angst and, and maybe dread
1: it, it is you know uh like a lot of people I love to, do, to drive I love to open the windows you know I grew up in the came of age in the 80s a time in which kind of um, bloodless apathy was the highest form of of expression you know to be chill to be laid back to Ferris, not B- care. Ferris Bueller. Yeah.
0: So you know Ferris Bueller's Day Off is the epitome know, I, of that. It's funny because I always, I love to drive go, I, I go ahead, Scott. Sorry. Th- that's a morally dangerous movie. Like it's funny because years ago serving as like a youth minister at a church, I thought about the movies parents worried that their kids watched, but nobody worried that their kids kid was watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's maybe maybe one of the most a or immoral movies. <laughs> I mean that's the Ferris Bueller is the poster child for bloodless apathy that you're talking about. And that's coming out of
1: that 80s kind of It was scene. it and you know I I love to drive with my shoes off. I love to stick my left foot out the window propped up on the um side view mirror. You know like there was just it's it's sick, really, to think that that was the best way I could imagine expressing my sense of freedom, and and now it's true. I mean, uh, I walk pretty much everywhere I go. Um, I've been been at various times in my life a, a, a huge transit advocate, you know, professionally and otherwise. Um, I've been. Uh, you know, kind of a, I've built a, a literary career around the intimate, personal, in-person, feet on the ground, discovery, exploration, a place. These are all antithetical to the automobile for the most part. And in sizing up the, the eco crisis, I've had to grapple with the role of the automobile, the space that it takes up in our imagination and in physical life, the experience of driving now today, which I talk about a moment, um, where I was in Florida driving a couple of years ago in the book on how it just drained the blood there. We go back to bloodless. I mean, a different bloodlessness, uh, was evoked for me in that moment, uh, of driving on a you know, innumerable-laned strip mall roads, and um, I see it as the beating down of the earth. Uh, a friend of mine who who lives intentionally by walking everywhere he goes. That means you no know, cars, trains, buses, airplanes or other conveyances, or I suppose even bicycles, he walks. And uh, this, he explains to me, he does to short circuit the way that we interact with reality. That is that when we drive or fly or train at high speeds, we are doing it to remove ourselves from reality so that we can get from point A to point B as if there were nothing in between. And he walks to live in the in-between so that it focuses his consciousness not on a invisible place, the in-between, but on a real living place inhabited fully that in-between, which no longer becomes the in-between, it just is reality. And so I'm really taken by this concept of his, not that I have the instinct to walk everywhere as he does, but this way in which conveyances convey us away from the reality in front of us Distance us further from the reality in front of us and take us further apart from the known and lived world of earth, you can see the ways in which the automobile is dangerous.
0: Is that one of the reasons, also, you've lived in Philadelphia, like, basically your entire adult life, right?
1: Yes. Aside from uh, stints in the Midwest and Europe uh, and other parts, uh, uh, I have been here in uh, living in Philadelphia in a a very, very rich urban environment um, for over 30 years. And um, I'm a creature of it.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. G.K. Chesterton writes somewhere, you know, he's, uh, it's actually a book of essays, something called Heretics. And he, he's, he's basically taking on all the orthodoxies of his day. And he's, Rudyard Kipling says something like, unless you have seen the rice paddies of China, you can never appreciate anything in London. And, and Chesterton says something no unless you've only lived in London you can't appreciate London. like there's this there's this there's something about pl- being historically committed to a place that seems to make you almost more universal like you know, that, that you write you, so i mean your books generally speak to very universal themes but you know i just i you know i've read you know some of your work and we've talked you know a few times about it but you have this sort of, but oftentimes it comes from your universality is so rooted in the particular. Is that intentional or is it just how it's worked out?
1: I think it's intentional. I think it is as a reader, you know, primarily as a writer, I'm a reader. So I'm hooked on reading particularly fiction that leads me deep into a place either I may know a little bit or I don't know at all. And where I can relate to it through the particularity of that place. And so, you know, I've worked up theories of place. I've worked up, uh, you know, how to think about the overlapping of space, physical space, and then human cultures that come in layers over them and interject and interact. Dynamically over time, creating a kind of particularity that isn't repeatable necessarily, but is relatable. And I think that's the beauty of art: is to convey that particularity that, in its essence, becomes relatable. Um, And so, I mean, and it's not just about place; it's about con you know moral constructs which i use in to reach the spring so like this is why i can draw on the banality of evil as a way to help us understand our own moral complicity in in climate emergency and eco crisis it's we're we're complicit and and there's one you know no we're not it's not the same as a Genocide against a particular people, as in the Holocaust, but the ways in which we have gone along with it—there are similarities that can help us understand what it is exactly we're doing.
0: You have this great phrase in in one of the sections about. Um, uh, you, you say, "I'll just read it because it's." I found it. I, it's one of the things I, I kind of jotted down. Um, we we are we of those two to three billion people who are just wealthy enough to cause planetary destruction merely by rising in the morning and going about the day, by the simple fact of being alive, as much as complicity in the Holocaust struck a rent as a new kind of crime to consider from a standpoint of personal moral responsibility. Mass ecological destruction and death caused by the quotidian interconnected actions of a vast range of human beings strikes me as still more vicious. And then this is the the payoff sentence: we are the most slippery kind of criminal. I I I I just underlined that. And I thought like this is yes, like this is right. And it's it, it's interesting because it, it, it the kind of moral. Delusion you have to do with yourself for the Holocaust to participate in a genocide is harder work, right? Where was what you're just saying? You just have to get up. You could be giving, you could be you are contributing. You might be giving to several climate change um, advocacy nonprofits and driving a Prius, and you're still in it. You know, like like you don't. It doesn't take the kind of Self-conscious moral deception, almost that Arendt is 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 pointing to. I mean, there's more work, in my sense, in getting to where Eichmann is than where we are.
1: Yes, that's right. There's more. There's more rational. There's more fierce rationalization that must be undertaken to get where Eichmann was, or or actually not just Eichmann, but like an ordinary German who was not even in power had no power, but just went along. Then it is to go along as we do just by getting up in the morning. At the same time, what makes us so slippery is that it's harder to recognize what we're doing. It's because what we're doing in our quotidian days is basically invisible to us. It's just the nature within which we live. The the way we are reliant on fossil fuels, the way that we're reliant on damming of rivers, the way we're reliant on, on political and economic... Um, Decisions to, for example, sell off gas and oil leases, Um, the way that we're relying on the transportation system, the way that most people in this country, particularly, the vast majority of people in this country, live in places where they cannot walk to where they need to go. They cannot. And a, a form of, of settlement, that is, uh, cities or towns, that is invisible to them because it is the nature of where they live. So that they have to get into an automobile to go anywhere. And that's an invisibility, really. It's an assumed reality. It's a desired reality it's a only way we know which is why when you know a sort of traditional like story of the american who travels to europe is blown away by the charm evoked by places that operate differently and in a kind of very cliche and trope way but you know that's when they become awakened to the invisible structures of their own lives, of our own lives.
0: I have been struck by this recently. Cause I, I, it's so funny. I have never watched curb your enthusiasm. You know, Larry David's hilarious show on HBO. I was a huge Seinfeld fan and, you know, have, ha, I probably have entire Seinfeld episodes committed to memory, but like, which is, I don't know what that says about me, probably something sad, but, but, you know, New York city is the supporting actor of Seinfeld. Right. And then as you're watching curb your enthusiasm, (laughs) LA is the supporting actor and everyone is in cars all the time. Like it, like it just, the, these shots you see of Larry David, you know, kind of in these humorous existential, like self rants where he's like, you know, like, but he's always in the car. We're like, occasionally you see the cast of Seinfeld in a cab or something, right? It's uh. like, but most of the time they're, they're walking. Like they're just, you don't, there are not many scenes in cars. Whereas in Curb Your Enthusiasm, it, there, there, there's just, in every episode, there is so much time spent in a car. um, Cause it's one of these, even though they're in an urban environment, they're in LA, it's a driving city. Um, and I was struck by this cause I spent some time in Phoenix this year. And it was the same thing. Like if you, if you live fifteen minutes from downtown, the center of Phoenix, you need a car. Like, well, like, where's you could live fifteen minutes from Center City Philly and not need a car. I mean, it just it strikes me that the ubiquity of like, of the car, in Kirby enthusiasm is some of what you're talking about. I think in the book because you just you don't think about it, and it's massively it's a massively different kind of lifestyle, right? Versus Jerry Seinfeld walks everywhere. <laughs> Like he do- he doesn't own a car. Uh, so, the- so and he's a successful, you know, comedian. Yeah, I have a
1: couple thoughts to that. One is that if you go back and watch those old episodes of Seinfeld, Scott, you will see that actually the car is more present than you remember. And that there there is running jokes about getting parking. And, um so just check that for a moment. And that may be that Larry David is a LA kind of guy and he sort of imposed. This is typical in in this country where over the, you know, since 1930, the suburban imagination, increasingly the Californian imagination, has been what has sort of taken over uh, as our understanding of American culture and American way of life. And so until 1930s, the New York, the urban, the East Coast, the densely populated was that. And it's and it was forced upon all of those Americans through film and other media who lived in other kinds of places. It made it very attractive to a lot of those people, and that's why we saw these huge migrations from uh, more pastoral places into cities in the first part of the 20th century uh, from other parts of the country. Um, and it, it you know, it was the lore that kind of New York lifestyle was the lore of countless young people from Indiana and Tennessee and, um, Ohio and wherever you might think, you know, into places like Philadelphia and New York and Chicago, we're, we're getting into Theodore Dreiser territory here. But, and And you get into the 20s and 30s, a third of Americans, a third of American people live in real dense, 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 dense cities. A third of, uh, they live not only in in those cities, the 10 largest of those cities. That's how urban American life was, (coughs) excuse me, how urban American life was practiced, manifest move into the second part of the 20th century and that is be, that begins to change and it, and it changes with great force so that by as you get into the 60s the dominant becomes the suburban imagination about life in America and that makes a tr- a, a true an important shift on our consciousness. And I will challenge you. I take your larger point completely about the difference between Seinfeld and the Larry David show. But I will tell you that Seinfeld was really made in the period in which California, that is writ large in a very generalized way, the the culture of California is still what was most important to understanding The United States as a place, it was the most powerful, evocative image of American life in the 90s when Seinfeld was was being broadcast and produced. And so along with that, in my this was always struck me as very strange that they would often drive somewhere and the subject of finding a parking space was so paramount, whereas you never saw a Seinfeld character on the subway. However, my guess is that if Seinfeld as a show taking place in New York City was being made any time after about 2005, the, the prevalence of the subway, the bus, this, the crowded sidewalk, the third place, the public space, the ways in which, though still very small, uh, urban America has sort of retaken back the narrative on what it means to live in America would have been much more prevalent in that show. And so, I mean, we have to remember that only about 7 or 8% of Americans live in real in what we would really, when we say the word city, think of as city, super dense, super diverse, um, traditionally, uh, you know, with the traditional cityscape, very, very small percentage of Americans live in that way. And yet beginning in around I, my take it to about 2005, the notion of Americans particularly among the young people had shifted to that Brooklyn reality over that LA reality. Sorry, this has been a huge tangent, but you're assigned. To-
0: it's not a tangent. No, it's tangent at all. It's not a tangent at all. I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating and that's an amazing insight about like this kind of, yeah, because the sprawling city kind of thing where you're the driving sprawling city. Which seems to me like the worst of all worlds, right? Like this kind of thing where you're all these people in dense things, in dense settings, driving all the time, just strikes me as
1: awful. it was meant to be the. I guess it was meant to be the best of all worlds. That's how it probably was thought of in 1948. You know, um, and, and you know, I think. Well, here we are. We're pretty damn fluid, aren't we? And as we've adapted to um, COVID. Oh, boy. I mean, we're all over the place with this. Um, in, in some places, there's been a holding on even a reification of public space for the use for so we can go places to be safe outside. Um, the claiming of sidewalk and even streets for the gathering of people in a you know safe outside way and in cities across the country and across the world. Um, I have you know, been saying that like, finally Philadelphia, the city where you and I live, has the right number of outside tables proportionally to the rest of the streetscape, where the, the amount of tables outside brings the kind of sidewalk life that we should expect for the kind of rich urban place that it is. And yet at the same time, COVID has put so many of us back in the, in the car where we're driving places more um, out of, out of safety. We're not using transit. We're not having the serendipity of moving from one mode of transit to the other and, and letting this machinery of the city take us around. We're back doing it in our private individual ways. Uh, so I think we're a little bit all over our, all over the place and it's hard to see where all this is going to land. And A lot of that has to do with whether Mr. Biden's um, COVID package can get through Congress because it contains a lot of money to reify transit and public space in American life for for the public good. We'll see if that happens.
0: You have a paragraph in the book that I, again, this is one of these paragraphs that I'm like, oh my gosh, how long did this take to write. Um, you, You say my point, and perhaps his, and you're quoting another author, is that we aren't bloodless killers like cyanobacteria. We may be craven, carnivorous, cloying, yes. But we are also courageous, concerned, caring, and conscientious. And this is our essential contradiction. And this, our essential contradiction, is the cause of our crisis. And another element of paralysis. We can't and shouldn't keep our distance from the life and death inside and outside of us. Distance observers, we are not. And as I read that, I thought Martin Luther jumped out to me when he's like, you know, Luther's in, in the medieval Catholic period, you're kind of either a sinner or a saint. And so like you go and get, your confession and then take the Eucharist and everything and you're now you're a saint, but then you you screw up and then now you're a sinner and you gotta get back to sainthood, you gotta get back to a state of righteousness. And Luther's famous Latin phrase was simo eustus et peccator. We are at the same time sinner and saint all the time. You know, we have both of these in us all the time. And that's like what I was thinking about. This this the power of the simul that at the same time we're both of these. And that, to me, as is, is I feel like it, it, one of the central sections of the book. I mean, in the sense of, if, if somebody was asking me to summarize the book, I would point them to this passage. That this is what we are, and and some of the book is an invitation to kind of like it's almost like therapy. Like a good th- like a good therapist can can get you to the point where you can look at the whole arc of your life you know, all the times you've been victimized and victimizer and, and, and this whole story. I mean, so that mean to me, like, how do you write a couple sentences like that? I mean, how long does that take? I mean, cause this is to me, one of the most revelatory sentences about the human condition I've read in a while.
1: Well, like I said, uh, Scott, that's really, um, I mean, you know, we put things on paper and we just never know, whether they could even possibly ever matter or whether we're just being self-indulgent by stringing words together or trying to make sense of something. You know, this book is me trying to make sense with my overarching existential dread and to invite the reader to, I guess, dread with me or, or hope with me as the, the title suggests. And so uh, a sentence like that comes out of out of reading. All of my writing comes out of reading. And as you said, it was actually in response to the work of a biologist, um, an ecologist, uh, Chris Thomas, a British scientist, who had written a book that seemed to me was expressing both of those things. He was trying to make a, an argument that, you know, life on earth, everything is always changing and species migrate and they form new species and they kick other species out. And that's just the natural way that life on earth works. And that's a, okay. Like we got to get good with that and just recognize that from a distance and sort of therefore let ourselves off the hook a little interesting. I found his argument in that book as a British man, strangely reminiscent of arguments for colonialism <laughs> and empire. And actually there was a section where I sort of reflect on that, that I think I took out. It was from an earlier, uh, uh you know, it was revised out of the manuscript, but that's an aside. Um, But the real thing here is that I wanted to say to him, yes, and. And we're also sentimental beings. We're also attached to place and history and identity and ways of life. And so, yeah, maybe that distance would be helpful. And maybe, yeah, you're right that species are always evolving, even if it's invisible to us most of the time. And yeah, you're right, Um, new species are are developing out of evolution right now as we speak, and they're doing it in large numbers, which is impressive and interesting and important to remember, but that the loss actually far surpasses that. And that loss, the way we relate to loss, is essential to human experience. Because we can reflect on loss, we can observe and experience loss. And in doing so is part of how we grow, it's part of how we ready ourselves for our own mortality. All of these things are important. And I you know, I made the f- the sentence born of the fun alliterative C's, C words. I did it to have fun, but I also did it because those were beings that he that biologist Tom Chris Thomas had talked about, the cuttlefish, etc. Mm. And the reasons that he had pulled them out was because they have meaning to us they matter to us they convey something to us each of them you know in all of the weird and dynamic and different you know different ways we relate to different kinds of animals some of which we see completely as like something to eat and others which which we with which we see as something to you know to pet and hug um This is a very complicated relationship we have to beings, other beings.
0: I saw a Facebook post today. I love animal Facebook videos. I mean, it's terrible. And I feel like I should just be canceled because of that. But but I love them. And there was somebody posted this meme or this video. And the, the caption was like, don't discount the strangest of friends. And it was like a Labrador puppy who was riding around the yard on the back of a rooster. And the rooster didn't care. <laughs> and you're like, one of these we would eat, and one of them is a pet, and they're nice like friends. And, and yeah, and 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 the like, I think we kind of imagine that the rooster can't relate to a dog or something, but they were the rooster like loved it. And, and you're just like this again. It's kind of what you're talking. It's it's so problematic. The lines that we draw between species and things sometimes are. They're just places. The lines
1: we draw are, are, you were about to say, problematic. And they're problematic only because they they help us realize how deep some of this stuff is. You know, like what we choose to eat and what we choose to pet is goes back to the enclosure of farms 14,000 years ago, hmm. right? And um, when the fact is, going back to one of your earlier questions – things really are fluid and the rooster and the dog can become best pals if they want to, if they're in the circumstances to. I recently saw a story on the sort of genome of the platypus, which is some crazy, crazy kind of being that's a combination of fish and reptile and mammal. Um, and I think I'm forgetting even something else. Um, bur- you know, avian species uh it is
0: and when it was discovered i think people like they i feel like they sent something back to england or something when it was first discovered i forget what the year was but and the people thought it was made up they thought they stitched together this animal because they're like there's no way an animal is like this <laughs> like the, the the natural bio the, the naturalists of the time were so skeptical that it even existed
1: yeah and, and yet we ourselves are amalgamations my God, aren't we amalgamations? We just happen to have gotten used to the way we look and act and move and think and all of that. But, you know, this whole, I mean, there's just this massive history of evolution that exists inside of each of us where we present different aspects of different species in different ways. Uh, and. So, I mean, it's just so, it's just something so um, evocative about that. The theorist Donna Ann Haraway, who I talk about in the book and whose work is really, really um, a lot of uh, philosophers and theorists and artists who are working in the eco sphere right now, those of us who are trying to think about and imagine ways forward we really love Haraway's work because it helps us to break down these imagined lines um and she imagines a future world in which just beings interrelate in ways that 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 we we, we don't quite see happening that we can't are the those, the set of expectations that we have for ourselves as a beings doesn't quite take account of uh, the, the interaction, evolution, co- combination, um, symbiotic living where we're reliant on each other, which is the truth of all life. It becoming manifest in new and different ways, and I mean, if you are to say. All of this isn't despair that we're going through. In fact, as, as Chris Thomas does, you know, this isn't all despair. This is change. Sit back and relax and watch it happen. It's exciting. That's a way in which we can do that. But we also, but we can't resist it, and we can't imagine there is some purity that we should be getting back to, and we can't um, imagine that emotionally and morally we are able to put our beliefs and our feelings and our expectations aside that's why we're in that's why we're in such inner conflict and why we can't seem to act w- with any clarity or even think with any clarity it go, it's bu- the contradictions are built in
0: You have a passage in the book where you say, I began this work on the eve of Yom Kippur. For Jews, the annual moment of taking account, recognizing the harm in ourselves. It has brought me to the instinct to repair, which Jews call Tikhon literally to heal the world. Tikhon alom took on a new urgency after the Holocaust. And since then has given Jews a powerful framework for seeking Justice, and you also talk about in in the same section of the book some powerful experiences you had in Israel and taking photos, and I, you know, it's interesting because you wrote this book as as a Jew, and I I don't know what your observance is. I I have a little sense because we've talked a few times, but but I read this book as a Christian, uh, and because I can't read it any other way, right? That's just my lenses, and I, I. I, I couldn't help but thinking that as I, after I read the book, I, I thought a lot about the children of Abraham. And there are things that the children of Abraham have given to the world. It just is, you know, every religious tradition and cultural tradition is given, right? Like I think there's some great gifts we've given to the world, but, but I think the West is uniquely responsible for starting the climate problem, right? Not, and again, now it's global and, but some of the things that the children of Abraham passed on to the broader world have gotten us into this crisis. And it, it, it made me think this is, you know, it made me, it, it evoked a sense of like religious responsibility in me because the children of Abraham might have a unique role in the crisis. I mean, is that, does that resonate with you at, at all?
1: It certainly does. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't put it exactly that way. And I would say, yes, I wrote this book as a Jew. I'm not a practicing Jew, but I'm a Jew by culture of justice seeking and by culture of, believing in healing and by culture of rule and by culture rules and by culture of seeking knowledge. Those are the sort of the Jewish imprint on the world is one of, and I'll talk about the other one, which I think is what you're getting at in a second. But the, the Jewish point of view on the world is one of Seeking knowledge for for good, seeking justice for good, believing in good. And that's where I come from in, in my tradition. So um, there is something very specific to the sons of Abraham. And that is reflected in that moment in which... Judaism and then Christianity and Islam came out of, which was the enclosure of space, and the belief and the and the and a belief system being created to relate to domesticate domestication of animals and of plants, and the stationarization, a new word. Actually, I hate those kinds of words. I shouldn't even use it. But the immobilization of human beings to singular domiciles where they would enclose their own private space, raise their food, animal, and plant, and pray to a God who will regulate that process a singular God responsible for the outcome. And that to me is the, is the main product of that moment of which you speak, which altered over many years and centuries and millennia, the relationship of human beings to their earth surroundings, which Became central to the conflict between colonizing Europeans and indigenous people in all different parts of the world, who lived under a different set of principles and different set of relationships to the non-human, and did and were not based on the domestication of living. The wall, the fence, the enclosure, the private property, the ownership, the command, the human as God over a terrain. And that paradigm, many, many theorists believe is, including Timothy Morton, the philosopher, believe is at the heart of our darkness. And it is what the concept of the mesh where we see ourselves as embedded in a mesh of all different kinds of living creatures and plants as a way out of that agricultural paradigm. Um, I want to say one more thing that isn't exactly related. Um, that is to me this The search for justice is at the heart of my response to the paralysis, my response to the eco-crisis and climate emergency. The knowledge that of, of who will suffer most, those who are least at fault, that seems to me a tremendous injustice that religious tradition can help us think about and should help us think about the evisceration of non-human life on earth. And the destruction is at such a scale that we'd have to do a whole show to talk about. Um, that's a matter of justice. It's not bloodless as Chris Thomas like would like us to think that it's all about natural processes of change decisions are made that produce unjust results and we need to take account for that of that
0: and also and also presumably as evolution goes on like the, there there are these things as consciousness increases like part of evolution is we can become more conscious as a collective right i mean that's you know it, this is why bees and ants are so successful, right? They they're more they're, they're communal, and, like I mean and on some level we could have it And more human beings are among the most communal
1: and collaborative of beings. Just like I mean I love studying ants and bees and understanding their societies and the ways that they work together and collaborate. I mean ants are the only other beings that pursue agriculture.
0: To go to war, well, they also they only
1: people yeah. that go to war and build cities. Uh, th- there's just so much to learn. So that is to say, perhaps our own um, impulse to create agriculture, or go to war, as you say, or build cities, which perhaps is part of the Judeo-Christian tr- uh, tradition. Um, it, you know, maybe that's just natural to who we are as collaborative cooperative beings that develop hierarchies and and the like. I mean, but the fact is that we do have the potential. We're so social. We're so interdependent, even though in, in our American culture, the emphasis is on the individual so substantially. But we're so interdependent that it could lead us to a new Consciousness, and and with COVID, it's kind of had to, you know. Like even when we talk about how to stop the British strain or the South African strain or the Brazilian strain of the virus from getting to us, it's dependent upon interactions, interrelationships, um, working together to make sure that the harm doesn't spread further, that's kind of sophisticated and kind of um, a revelation that we can use knowledge, collective knowledge, collaborative knowledge to to help ourselves out of an emergency.
0: I'll tell you one of the takeaways from the book for me, reading it through a kind of Christian lens um, was there's a deep word of grace here. and I think there's this kind of I mean grace at its best is not um, cheap. It, it's hard fought and what I mean I think of like Les Miserables and why everyone loves that film and the, and the musical and you know, because this idea of like when the priest comes to Jean Valjean, who's the criminal, And gives him a pardon, you know, like it it, gives him a kind of space to explore his own journey. Like he's got this thing looming over him and the priest gives him the space for grace. And I think one of the things I appreciate about your, about your book here is that like, it's got this deep spiritual message that I think conveys, Hey, look, this is not moralistic. Like you're implicated, whether you're the um, whether you're the person making the right decisions, uh, you know, on the climate checklist or not, it's bigger than that. And so I think once you have, you know, it, it's one of these things like that happens in therapy, right? Once you get permission to really explore your story with, with no strings attached and the good, the bad and the ugly is all accepted, then you can make real change. And I think you're inviting us, as Western consumers to a relationship with our, our being that I think is the real first step, if we're ever going to make any headway with the climate crisis. And so thank you. I mean, for me, I mean, just saying personally, thank you. Cause it really gave me, and I'm a guy that's on the team. Like I, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I came into reading the book you know i'm not a skeptic about climate change i'm i'm a guy of the left but it it impacted me and gave me some existential frameworks to actually get in a better place around dealing with the thing that's really the only issue because if they, we don't get this issue what does it matter if we <laughs> whatever else we do right cuz this is the issue so thank well, you um from your mouth to god's ears as I, <laughs> as,
1: <laughs> as they say um you know it's it's This was the intent, um, quite precisely what you just said, to reach the reader in the individual moral framework, the personhood, to talk through, essentially to talk through avenues toward grace. Isn't that what to reach the spring in its original form from Primo Levi was all about? that there was an avenue in the darkest winter of 1944-45, there was an avenue to reach the spring. And nature for him, a vision of nature across the street from the walls of Auschwitz was that light, that signal, that sign. Uh, that grace could be possible, that hope wasn't mislaid use of energy, that, that it was required. And that interestingly, for our purposes, that same nature is the same nature to lead us ourselves into a new space In regard to our own consciousness, our own well being, our own security, our own ability to thrive. Uh, Because metaphorically, the nature that was destroyed in Auschwitz, which Levy describes as gray, black machinery, obviously, certain kinds of machines, the landscape was. It was a it was a landscape of unlife, unlife. In in a real way, that's where we're headed by doing all the things that we're doing to Earth. And yet, Earth still has the capacity to remind us. So I guess I'm asking that we listen not only to it, but to the way it resonates inside of each of us and then move on from there.
0: Thanks for writing this book and thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. My pleasure, Scott. Always love to talk with you.